Good morning. All right, you're awake and alert. That's good news. I've uh, chosen to uh, call this message, Spiritual Gifts, the Elephant in the Room. This is the 11th message, and uh, you may wonder that I've been able to get this far without discussing the the great controversial question about uh, temporary versus permanent spiritual gifts. So now is the time. I might as well get the elephant out in the open, and my trunk, as I told somebody, is packed, so this elephant's ready to leave shortly. But there, uh, th- this has been something that, that I've had some experience with personally, not on the uh, charismatic side, but just in my, in my growing up years, uh, I've had to, to square off with the question of temporary versus permanent spiritual gifts. When I was just in high school, there was a man who was uh, a vocalist and well-known in the area and was a non-charismatic, and he had had an unusual experience uh, that he described to me. He did not talk about it a lot in, in public, but he described it to me, and I found that I really could not refute what he was describing as his uh, experience. I might add, it was not an experience with tongues. But then I came to uh, Dallas uh, and applied at Dallas Seminary, and in the process of application, and you'll see it on the screen, uh, there was a statement that uh, I was uh, asked to sign uh, as a potential student that that said, do you agree with uh, Dallas Seminary's position, and this was one of them. It may have been revised. I don't remember it precisely the way it's on the screen, but this comes off the DTS website. I thought might as well have the latest version of it. But they say, we believe that some gifts of the Holy Spirit, such as speaking in tongues and miraculous healings, were temporary. We believe that speaking in tongues was never the common or necessary sign of the baptism, nor of the filling of the Holy Spirit, and that the deliverance of the body from sickness or death awaits the consummation of our salvation in the resurrection. I would encourage you to look those uh, texts up, which I did. And and I was coming at this as as a non-Greek student, didn't know the Greek text at all, and I simply uh, signed my name and I made this comment. I'm not a student. That's why I'm coming. To, uh, I want to come to Dallas Seminary. But I have to tell you, if those are your best texts, they're not very compelling. And uh, and nobody said a word. Nobody said a word. And and until the end of my third year, then it was time to have our little discussion. And uh, so I got called in, and the question was, "Well, where are you now?" And I said, "Well, to be really honest with you, uh, I do know a little bit about Greek." and so on, and it hasn't helped me at all. I still don't find the arguments compelling. And that, that, I said, I'm not a charismatic. I'm not trying to be a charismatic. I'm just telling you, I would wish you could do better than this. That's, that was all I had. They let me graduate. I slipped through the cracks somehow, <laughs> and uh, here I am. They may regret that after this message. I don't know. But uh, when not... Too long after graduation, uh, when I was a part of, of another body, I, I was uh, given the opportunity to participate and to speak in a conference that was on the charismatic gifts, and I opted out. 
I opted out because I still wasn't compellingly convinced that certain spiritual gifts could not exist. I wasn't arguing whether they did, but just whether they exegetically, biblically, couldn't exist today. I opted out of that. I, and I've never regretted it, by the way. Um, but that's, that's kind of uh, where I've come from. And the truth of it is that now, in my experience, I've had the opportunity and the privilege of, of coming to know uh, some men who are at least over the line so far as the Dallas Seminary statement would be. But I have to tell you, these are people who are some of the most serious students of Scripture that I've known. And they are people who, in their description of, of what they do, fall completely within the, the, the standards uh, that are set down by Scripture. And so the truth of it is, I can't argue with them. And the interesting thing about them all is... None of them raises the subject. I raise the subject to discuss it with them. They are not trying to push it down my throat. Now, this is probably a good time to do a little disclaimer, and that is uh, I hope that what I am saying will not thin the ranks and cause all kinds of uh, tumult and whatever. But I have to say this. Don't blame the elders for what I'm going to say now. Uh, this is my this is my understanding, and there may well be differences within the elders, and there may well be differences within our body, and I would hope that those would be graciously uh, entertained. So let's talk about the importance of the matter for a minute, can we? Why is this an important matter for us to discuss? Well, I would suggest that that if, for example, gifts like signs and wonders were for today it might have a very significant impact on our evangelism. When I was at the uh, Muslim conference a couple of Sunday, uh, weekends ago, someone made this comment, if you don't believe in signs and wonders, don't try to evangelize a Muslim. <laughs> and, and I thought to myself, if you, if you just think about that for a minute, and some of the things that we've been praying for as a church, not just for evangelism here within our community, praying that God might give, for instance, somebody uh, a, a dream that would prepare their heart for the, for the gospel, as very often seems to be the case. Or for those who are our missionaries abroad, that we pray for them. Do we not pray for things that, that maybe 20 years ago we would have thought was over the line uh, and that somehow it was out in that forbidden territory? So I just have to say, I think things have loosened up uh, in the last few years, and evangelism is, is very much impacted by where we come down on these things. We see these gifts uh, in other contexts and countries, as I, as I mentioned uh, just a, a moment ago. And uh, it does bear on our faith and on our relationship with the Holy Spirit. I think for some of us, the Holy Spirit is an academic entity, and that we don't really have the intimacy that we ought to have with the Spirit. And, and, and maybe this is part of the issue, is this whole matter here. I, I really need to say something now. I, I say on the slide, there are some good people. Let me say something specifically about John Piper. John Piper may be the finest preacher alive today, in my opinion. In my opinion, he may be the finest preacher alive. Everything I know about him, I like and is good. But I do disagree with him on some spiritual gifts. And I am going to disagree this morning about those. And if you'll listen to me carefully and listen to him carefully, you will discover that he's not rock solid on those points either. 
But, but this is not my, 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 my shot, uh, so to speak, to take on uh, one of the big boys in this arena. This is a very important issue. And I think that the issues now between cessationists and non-cessationists are really critical uh, in terms of being sharp on the scriptures. So let me give you a brief overview of, of the movement as, as at least I see it in my experience. You may or may not have had a similar experience. You may not uh, agree, but this is sort of my assessment. When I was really young, there was this Pentecostal movement, but that was kind of within certain denominations, the Assemblies of God and so on. And, and it was kind of from, from the circles in which I traveled, it was on the fringe, and, and, and people sort of called it the holy rollers, and, and you had a certain stigma that went with that. And, and they were just kind of off in the margins, and so they weren't really taken all that seriously. Then came the charismatic movement, where now you see the phenomena, in particular at the beginning, the phenomena of tongues, came into mainline churches, even into Roman Catholicism, mainline denominations. The, the charismatic movement had a very significant inroad and impact within those denominations. The problem is there was just a whale of a lot of division that came of that. Now, I can remember this in, in my own personal history in the church that I was a part of as a, as a teenager. There were very fine people who, who entered into a, a, a charismatic experience, and that experience became so dominant, so prominent in their minds, and so much the bellwether of all their spirituality that they just had to be evangelistic about getting everybody else on board too. And the result was a split. And, and you and I know the countless instances of churches that were split because there were some people who were saying, I've had this experience. Everybody needs to have it. If you haven't had it, you may not have been saved. You may not have been filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit and, and on down the line. And, and it was a very, very problematic time. And you would understand why cessationists would rise tall in the saddle to take on the threat, the challenge that seemed to be posed. But I, I've got there this point C, notable exceptions. What I want you to understand is that even in those days when the charismatic movement was really uh, rolling and before the third wave, before the vineyard movement came along, John Wimber and, and whatever, there were people who were not cessationists. And so I, I just list two of them just to tell you. There are some people we think very highly of, or let me put it this way, you ought to think very highly of, <laughs> who, who were not cessationists. I was listening to A.W. Tozier. Somebody got me a set of, of recordings of A.W. Tozier on the attributes of God done in Toronto, I think in the early 70s. And, and Tozier is talking about the attribute of God's immutability. And, and, and he, he is not an entertainer. You know, I mean, he, he is, you know, that's not his stick. But he's talking along about how God doesn't change. And, and then he sort of pauses. And his whole thing was, if God doesn't change, why is it that the God that we talk about today is so vastly different from the God we read about in Acts. And then he stops and he says, eschatology, it's just another word for unbelief. Now what he's saying, what he's saying is, I think, 
dispensationalism. And, 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 and he's saying this. Dispensationalism can look at the book of Acts and say, that's this dispensation. We're in a new dispensation. Don't plan any miracles today. And he's saying, if God's immutable, isn't that a little bit over the wire? So, A.W. Tozier, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and you'll notice uh, that I have that on the screen. It's a quote that uh, Piper has posted in one of his sermons, Signs and Wonders, Then and Now. Uh, and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones says in 1965, it is perfectly clear that in the New Testament times, the gospel was authenticated in this way by signs, wonders, and miracles of various characters and descriptions. Was it only meant to be true of the early church? The scriptures never anywhere say that these things were only temporary. Never. Look at that exclamation point. There is no such statement anywhere. I guess we don't have any trouble knowing where he stood. He was not a cessationist. And, and again, Martin Lloyd-Jones was wise. He did not make that the, the dominant theme of his ministry. But I'm just saying, people we highly respect, and rightly so, were not in the cessationist camp. And that ought to say to us, that gives us pause for thought. But then came the vineyard movement. And, and John Wimber was right at the heart of that. And many people have uh, different feelings and emotional gut reactions to the name, let alone uh, his ministry. And, and I'm, I'm not a, I have not done extensive reading on Wimber, so I, I can't claim that. But from what I know and what I've been told, Wimber had a, a certain moderating effect on the charismatic movement. It would say things like, we don't say that God must heal. All we say is that God can heal and he may heal. Therefore, we will pray that God will heal knowing that he can and may, but not insisting that he must. So it wasn't this kind of thing where if you only have enough faith, you know, God's going to heal you. There's no question about that. The only issue is whether you have enough faith to get God online. That's not, that was not Wimber's thing. Wimber also made an effort to engage the more theological uh, element of evangelicalism and not to be, so to say, wild and woolly. <laughs> so he sort of sheared the sheep. And they weren't as wild and they weren't as woolly because he had engaged people who were serious students. And, and uh, as a result, you see these next uh, fellows, Jackie Deer, uh, Sam Storms, who was at Believer's Chapel, as you know, and uh, Wayne Grudem uh, would be these guys. These are uh, strong, reformed uh, thinkers in, in the solid theological realm and would be highly respected, if not for this area, for virtually every other area. And, and so these are not, these are not uh, kooks. These, these are stable, mature, thoughtful men who have now entered into that camp, and, and I would include uh, John Piper among them. And I've got Vern Poitras at the end, because Vern Poitras does this thing where he tries to accommodate non-cessationists, and he says, well, what we see today isn't really Old Testament prophecy. It isn't really New Testament prophecy. It's sort of on the analogy of prophecy. Now, I got to tell you, folks, I, I'm not too smart because I just can't, I, I can't get with that. I don't, I don't know what that means, but I just can't get on that train. 
it, it just analogy of prophecy. I mean, it either is Old Testament, New Testament prophecy, or it isn't prophecy. So, in my mind. But there is a little bit of the reform thinking there, I think, and I, I won't go into that, but there, there, is a, there is a pattern that sometimes ref, reform thinkers will do, that they play on the analogy, and you'll see it in baptism, infant baptism, they'll play on the analogy of circumcision. So it's not a, a reach for them to go there. It is a reach for me to jump there. It's sort of the evil Knievel credibility gap that, that, you know, when they talked about Nixon, Nixon was going to try and jump the, the uh, I mean, I'm sorry, evil Knievel was going to try and, he was killed trying to jump the Nixon credibility gap. Well, this gap, evil Knievel couldn't make for in my mind. I put Dan Wallace down there. Because I really want to encourage you to read an article. It's on Bible.org. It's also in the book, Who's Afraid of the Holy Spirit? Uh, and it's called The Uneasy Conscience of a Non-Charismatic Evangelical. That is a, that is a very significant article. Because uh, Dan came out of a, of a somewhat charismatic uh, background. And, and then was involved at Dallas Seminary and, and, and got much more, uh, cranial, uh, in his, in his approach. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm not trying to badmouth that. I'm just saying more rational, more whatever, but moved from that, that charismatic camp to the, to the other side. And then he had an eight-year-old son who had incurable cancer. And, and what he's saying is, as I came through that experience, I began to experience the reality of a relationship with God and the rela- a relationship with the Holy Spirit that I had lost. And, and, and so he's describing this and he's saying, I haven't become a charismatic. I'm still a cessationist, but it's revised my view of the Holy Spirit and the relationship of the Holy Spirit and, and the fact that the Holy Spirit works and acts today. He's got 11 theses that he, uh, uh, Posits uh, in that message, and I would really encourage you to take a look at that. This was was done as a message, first done as a message delivered to the Evangelical Theological Society, and it was a break in several ways. Number one, it wasn't this heady uh, theological paper like those guys do that makes great paperweights and, and other things. This was a real world. Uh, this is where I've been and this is what God's doing in my life kind of thing. And he spoke to an audience that had both uh, 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 cessationist and non-cessationist people, charismatics within the, the, the group. Uh, but he was speaking primarily to those who said all these phenomena have ceased, but, but you need to come to terms with the reality of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So I find myself caught in the middle, as you'll see on the, on the screen. So let's just be sure we understand what I'm talking about when I say cessationist and non-cessationist. It, it's just a fancy way of saying some believe there are permanent gifts and temporary gifts, and other people believe, non-cessationists believe, that all the gifts are accessible uh, throughout all time, basically, uh, pretty much at least. And so you've got those who would say the gifts, as I read from the Dallas Seminary Statement, gifts of healing, gifts of tongues, those kinds of things, were for the apostolic days. They came to cease at the, at the end of those apostolic days, and we don't expect them, and I think you would even say we won't permit them, uh, so to speak, uh, within the context of uh, today. 
So having said that, let's talk about the cessationist uh, position. Those who believe some gifts are temporary and are not for today. One, they are rightly critical of the excesses and abuses that took place within the charismatic movement. There were a lot of things to criticize. And interestingly enough, my friends who were on that side of the fence are the first to point those out. They would say, some of the things that go on here are really horsey. They are. I mean, for instance, you all know about it, the Toronto Blessing. You know, and you start looking at that and you think of barking like dogs and roaring like lions and... I got to tell you, folks, I think I'd get off that train pretty early, too. And, and, and within that movement, a number, maybe not all, but a number of the vineyard churches got off the train and said, that's not us. That's not where we're going. And, and so there were some kind of kooky things going on. And, and the cessationist, no doubt, rightly pointed the finger of accusation and said, not for me. I'm encouraged, as I said, by Dan Wallace's challenge to cessationists, that seems to be a movement of saying, while we may not be in their camp, we certainly can extend ourselves in that direction. And and there are some in the non-cessationist camp who have certainly moved in our direction. Three, cessationists are really troubled by the non-cessationist definition of prophecy. I'm going to come to that, and I'm going to tell you I am really on this one like a duck on a June bug. I just can't understand how you can come up with some new category of prophecy that is absolutely different from what we find in Scripture. Nevertheless, I say, as much as I have respect for those and much of the beliefs of the cessationists, I just still can't find those texts compelling to where I I can say in good conscience, these gifts could not exist today. What I do say is they better exist in the form that they are described in the Scriptures and they better exist in the practice that that they are in the Scriptures. But I uh, digress. So let's talk about areas of agreement with the non-cessationists. Their arguments are, they find the, the cessationist arguments less than compelling and so do I. And I'm now speaking probably more for myself than I am for them. But as I read through and I look through the list of the spiritual gifts, I have to tell you, I don't know where you would take the knife and say, these are temporary and these are permanent. I don't know where you draw those lines. To me, it's just very, it's arbitrary. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, those temporary or permanent. To me, I, I just find it very difficult. And if I can't draw my lines, then are the, is, the necess- is the necessity of drawing a line really that, that hardcore? Don't know. Uh, and, and thirdly, uh, sign gifts, in my opinion, are, are not just to accredit the apostles. I think that's one of the strong things. That, that yes, the sign gifts are there, but they're only to accredit the apostles. There are just too many texts which speak more broadly of those sign gifts, and consequently, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not compelled. Fourth, could these be the last days? When you look at Joel uh, chapter 3 and Acts chapter 2, and he's describing what will happen in the last days, if we agreed these are the last days in some way, shape, or form, then do we not should we not expect the phenomena that Joel describes? So I guess what I'm saying is, cessationist or not, do you not have to agree that when the last days come, there will be dreams and visions and prophecies and so on? Is that not right? 
at some point in time then, they're not temporary anymore. <laughs> they're they're going to come back. So if, if we're living in the last days, then that puts them in the category of possibilities, for me at least, and for the uh, non-cessationists. Signs, that's really a repetition of what I said before. Signs and wonders reinforce the preaching of the gospel. I got to tell you, and that text in Acts chapter 4, I mean, there's a lot of difference between preaching the gospel and raising somebody from the dead when you do so and, and just preaching the gospel. Now, I remember John the Baptist. He didn't do any miracles and, and the Spirit worked through him. But signs and wonders do have a way of getting people's attention, I think. And uh, so it can be beneficial to the preaching of the gospel. They would say, the non-cessationists would say, that a lot of cessationists act like they really don't believe God's going to do anything miraculous. You know, like it's just, it's just God, God is somehow now going to work in humdrum ways. Now, I'm going to be a little harsh, but look at the way they raise money. I see, I see a lot of evangelicals raising money in exactly the same way, exactly the same way as non-believers raise funds. And I say to myself, <laughs> I don't know, but don't you, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be so much better to see God provide in a miraculous way rather than in some sort of uh, mechanized, uh, you know what I'm saying, manipulative way? It just seems to me that sometimes we get off and, and, and it's easier to do things in the proven way of the world rather than to look for God to do things miraculously. And I say, are we consistent in our prayers? And, and there I'm talking about the prayers you and I pray on a daily basis for people who have gone out from this body. Do we not pray for things that we wouldn't have prayed for 25 years ago? I do. I do. And I expect more today than I did 25 years ago, and it's happening there's a consistency problem, I think, if we, if we get too narrow. So here's my, here's my big problem with, uh, with the non-cessationists, and it regards their definition of prophecy. And I, I'm going to pick on Piper a little bit here for a minute, but he's a big boy, and he'll, he can take it. Uh, look at what he says. It's, it's actually started on one uh, screen and, and finished on the other. The gift of prophecy is a very different thing than the verbally inspired speech of the apostles and prophets who wrote scripture. The gift of prophecy today is not the same prophecy of the Bible. Hello. <laughs> Does that not make you want to, woohoo, we're in trouble now. We're out there in never, never land. To me, we are. It goes on. It is based on a spontaneous revelation from the Holy Spirit, but it is fallible and in need of sifting because our perception of the revelation and our thought about it and our delivery of it are all fallible. You know what that says to me? Expect it to be wrong. Whew, that, that, just, that just blows the top off of my head. I can't understand it. Uh, now, here, listen to what Piper says, because, and this would be Piper and Grudem and all these guys. They are very quick to say, because this new kind of prophecy is really second class, I call it watered down. It, it's watered down prophecy, then it obviously has to be dealt with somewhat differently than the prophecy that we see in the Bible. And, and so they make it very clear. The prophecy we're talking about, this prophecy is not the same as this prophecy. Well, 
automatically you start saying, prophecy isn't prophecy? That doesn't make sense. Listen to what he says. Let me begin by affirming the finality and sufficiency of Scripture, the 66 books of the Bible. Nothing I say about today's prophecies means that they have authority over our lives like Scripture does. Whatever prophecies are given today do not add to Scripture. They are tested by Scripture. Scripture is closed and final. It is a foundation, not a building in process. The nature and authority of the gift of prophecies. Now, if that's true, I have some things to say. One, if prophecies today are to be tested by the scriptures, which have supreme authority, if the scriptures are supreme in their authority and and by those you test those prophecies, then why don't we test the definition of prophecy by those scriptures? Does that not make sense to you? If the scriptures are really final, then wouldn't the scriptures themselves say, this is prophecy? And they have. Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. There, I can't, I can't bury those texts. Deuteronomy 13 and 18 together say this. If somebody comes to you as a prophet and says, this is going to happen, and it doesn't, he's a false prophet. <laughs> he's done. I mean, that's the end of it. Well, you wouldn't worry about too much prophecy of that kind very long, would you, in the church? Then it says, if someone comes to you and predicts something and it does happen. Now, the second test is the same one as we see in, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Jesus is Lord. If that person seeks to turn you from following God and obeying him... He is a false prophet. Even people who produce miracles, but who are turning us from obedience to God, are false prophets and are to be put to death. Now, that is the definition of prophecy I see in the Old Testament. When the New Testament changes things, would you not agree with me? When it changes things, folks, it's very clear. For example, the clean and unclude ceremony of food laws. When, when you see the, the ceremonial food laws, which was a part of the separation of Gentile and Jew, Mark chapter 7, it's very clear there. It says, thus he declares all foods clean. Jesus had said, that isn't the way it is anymore. When you get to Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, if you didn't get the point from Mark chapter 7, you get it in Acts 10 and 11. All foods are clean. And if you don't think that's enough, go to Galatians 2, where Paul has to slap Peter's wrists for practicing something contrary to that. What I'm saying is, when the Old Testament standard is changed, we are told, we are told clearly and emphatically that's the truth. When someone comes along and says, we've got a new kind of prophecy that isn't like the Old Testament, it isn't like the new, but it's by analogy, I'm saying... Forget that. In my book, I'm not on board with that. That just really bothers me. Okay, I'm just getting warmed up on this. But look at the next screen. I'll start halfway through. Thus, I am told this new prophecy can never replace or revise or override the inspired revelation of the Scriptures. But if this is so, if the Scriptures are supreme, then why are they not regarded as supreme in the definition of prophecy which they give us? Okay, now... I've been whooping on Piper a little bit. Piper's a man of integrity. And if you look at what he says carefully, 
you will discover that this is a place where he is not pounding his pulpit. Listen to what he says. Now, I've already tipped my hand that I think Grudem is right about the meaning of New Testament prophecy, this new kind that, you know, it's not like the old and whatever. But I want to say here at the outset that even if he is wrong, whew, that's not very dogmatic, uh, he says that this kind of thing is what New Testament prophecy was. The experience may still be valid, and we just should not call it the gift of prophecy. That's exactly right. Don't. Don't call it prophecy if it isn't prophecy. Uh, my, I, I, don't, I don't know why that's so hard. Next, next frame. We don't need to agree on whether to call this experience prophecy. See, all we need to agree is that, that these experiences could happen. I'm willing to grant that, that God may reveal something. And as I look at what he describes, I look at the, the expressions word of wisdom and word of knowledge, and, and frankly, it would fit. It would fit under those categories, I think. But it doesn't fit under prophecy. It just can't. Now, I want you to notice, I called attention, this came from a message he delivered October 10th, 2004. His first messages began in 1990 on, on this temporary versus permanent thing. 1990. So he's had some years to reflect. And at the end of that, this is the last sermon that I am aware of where he's addressed this question of, of prophecy and, and temporary versus permanent. This is his last reflective thought. And his last reflective thought is it may not be true. And, and so all I'm saying is, well, then for crying out loud, drop this new brand of prophecy and let's, let's uh, go on. I, I, next frame will show you some other things that I've just said. Paul works very hard... It, does he not, as you're reading in 1 Corinthians, Paul works very hard to press for the supremacy of prophecy, sp- particularly the supremacy of prophecy over tongues. Now, I know that's chapter 14, and we haven't quite gotten there, but Paul makes a point of saying, prophecy, now that, that's the real, that's the good gift. If he makes prophecy the supreme gift, what are we doing watering it down to some willy-nilly gift? I mean, by the time you get through saying, well, it might be, I might have heard something from God, I might have understood it correctly, and you might hear me convey it correctly, with all of those mites, I'd say it isn't number one anymore. It's it's worse than tongues. Because I don't know whether this is from God or not. Okay. If in the last days prophecy will again occur, what kind of prophecy will it be? The new improved kind? or I should say the new unimproved kind, or the old kind. I think it's going to be the old kind. If the old kind of prophecy is going to come, just like it was in the Old Testament and the New, then why don't we just leave the definition the same so we know what we're going to expect when it gets here? I don't understand that. The other thing is, the one thing about the gift of prophecy, which is unique, is the fact that it can't be wrong. I mean, you think of all the other gifts, and in fact, some of these guys will make a point of that. The gift of teaching. The gift of teaching, you all know. Do you not? You all know that I'm not right all the time. Some of you know I'm right less of the time than others think. (laughs) You know, no teacher is ever right all the time. You don't claim that. And, And every other gift that we would exercise, we don't exercise that perfectly. But prophecy is unique, is it not? 
I mean, it is either thus saith the Lord or it is not. And so the one gift that stands apart and above all other gifts, because it's infallible and inerrant, it may not be in Scripture, but if God said it, that's the way it is. If that's the case, if we take that away from it, my friend, we've just neutered the number one gift. I don't understand how that can happen. Now, all, all of that, just to tell you, here's my problem. I, the problem I have in 1 Corinthians is this. If the gift of prophecy is such a great gift, then why in 1 Corinthians and other epistles, why is it that it's spoken of in, in more common terms? I would that all of you, uh, uh, well, that's all of you speak in tongues, but he says, desire the better gifts, desire that you might prophesy. So when you read and you, for instance, you look at 1 Corinthians 14 and in the meeting of the church, you see one prophet speaks. In fact, it says two or no more than three prophets can speak. You get the feeling like prophecy is going on more frequently in the epistles than it was in the book of Acts. So how do I explain and and put together this hard definition of prophecy that I'm still hanging on to and this uh, frequency thing in the epistles? Let me just lay these out for you. One, the epistles were written before the canon of Scripture was closed. They didn't have a Bible to go to and get the thus saith the Lord in print. They had some of the Scriptures, not all of them. And surely that must have had a a bearing on it. The apostles are still living. And Paul, remember, is one of those who is an apostle and a prophet. And he is one who is revealing things from God. And he is one who is despised. I take it that not only the apostles, but their apostleship is despised. Not only the prophets, but their prophecies are despised. And I take it that the gifts of these pseudo-teachers are probably more into the razzle-dazzle gifts than they are into prophecy. And so what Paul is saying is, you need to appreciate this gift. Now, try this last one. I just put 1 Peter 4, 10, and 11. A lot of you are too old to remember Rafael Mendez. When I was a kid, I played a trumpet. Not particularly splendidly, but I played it. But I remember a guy named Rafael Mendez, and when I listened to that guy play his trumpet, i got to tell you, I said... That's, that's the way I want to play. Now, I could have listened. When, when we moved to where we live now, there was a kid down the street that practiced his trumpet with the window open. He was not Rafael Mendez. I did not ever say to myself, oh, that I could track, play that trumpet like him. When you elevate, when you elevate something and you say, this is what you ought to desire to be, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to play that way. But if you raise the standard and say, that's what you should desire, doesn't that raise the expectations of the church? Here is the church that is desiring the bottom gift. And Paul is saying, prophecy is the top gift. Desire that as a church. And now, go to First Peter 4. 10, or actually verse 11, where he says, He who speaks, let him do so as it were the oracles of God. Now, here's the way I take this. If we desire prophecy as we should, and prophecy is speaking the very words of God, that every time I speak, I know my words are not the very words of God. But if I say to myself, If speaking the very words of God is the ultimate, and I I believe it is, in speech, it is the ultimate, is it not? Then 
Everything that I say that I cannot anchor to the very word of God ought to be really suspect. I I ought to really be soft peddling those things for which I don't have a thus saith the Lord. But if indeed I value prophecy, I I value the, the, the word of God that is spoken clearly and authoritatively and without error, that ought to raise the level of everyone who speaks in the church if they're following 1 Peter 4.11. So it seems to me that raising that standard is beneficial to the whole church. I know that's quick, but you're going to wear out on me very quick. So let me just say a couple of things, and I'm going to skip down to my last two frames. To non-cessationists, let the Bible be the ultimate authority for defining spiritual gifts. Let the Bible define prophecy. It's just that simple, and don't get it somewhere else. Reject any definition which not only fails to square with Scripture, but seems to fly in the face of it. And that's what the modern view of prophecy seems to be. Thirdly, don't water down spiritual gifts. I, I, you know, if it's going to be tongues, folks, then it better be the tongues of the New Testament and not some watered down something that just fits easier because you lower the standard. If it's going to be prophecy, then let it be the prophecy of Scripture. Hold the standard high. Don't lower it so it's easier to attain. And I didn't put this a point on. I added it. Number four, insist that the gifts be exercised biblically. i got to tell you, most of the problems would be solved if we simply said, do it God's way. Do it the way the Scripture says. Is it the gift of tongues? then you know what the scripture says. We'll get to that in chapter 14. You look around, there's no one with a gift of interpretation. You speak to yourself and to God. I have friends who do that, but they don't speak publicly because they know there's no interpretation. So let's let those things be exercised in a way that is biblical and most of the problems go away. Two cessationists in conclusion. That's probably more of us than otherwise. Be aware, listen to this, be aware that strict cessationism is saying we have no need of you to some gifts. Is that not right? <clears throat> just it, it, I'm, I'm not trying to press it beyond its limits. I'm just saying Paul has just told us about this possibility of someone who says, I don't have need of you. When you look at strong and harsh cessationism, it basically says, we have no need of you, we won't have any of you. And all I'm saying is, we we need to hold that in in light of what the warnings are. And, and, And I'm not saying that makes anybody drop their cessationism necessarily, but understand the implications of what you are saying if you're going to be a strict cessationist. Don't be close to God working powerfully today. Indeed, pray and expect that he may do so. That's what Dan Wallace is saying in in his thing. Believe that God can and does answer prayers in miraculous ways. Last, how are we praying? That's why I chose Acts chapter 4. My question to you is, could you pray that prayer today? Could you pray that God would give you and us as a church boldness to proclaim the gospel and ask God that he might, in a mighty and powerful way, work to underscore that gospel in such a way that it is very difficult to write off? 
That's, that's what I would like for us as a church. I would like us to raise the level of our prayers. Now, I don't, I, I don't want to pick on anybody because I've probably done it too. Let's suppose that somebody is sick and dying in the hospital. When I pray, oh, Lord, be with the doctors, what have I just said? Now, I'm not saying that God may not use the doctors to cut it out, stomp it out, whatever they do with the stuff. That's fine. But, but, but is my prayer suggesting that God is not going to work in any more miraculous, powerful way than what everybody else gets? That's all I'm saying. Is it not possible that we should pray that God might miraculously heal somebody contrary to all medical theory and practice if that's his will and that brings him glory? And I'm saying our prayers reveal the level of our faith and expectation. And if we analyzed our prayers, we wouldn't be too impressed. And that's what I'm saying about this. Expect God to not only be able to do great things, but to actually do them. That's why he put his spirit in us and in the world to work in a mighty and powerful way to manifest the gospel in Jesus Christ to lost people. If you're here and you don't know him, that's what this is about. It's about Jesus. It's not about us getting power. It's about God powerfully getting the message to you. And all I can say to you as an unbeliever, if there's anyone here, try and forget this stuff. Because it isn't my persuasive skills that will ever get you to heaven. I guarantee you that. But try telling the Spirit of God no when he convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He convicts you that Jesus is Lord and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before him that he is Lord. That's what this is about. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for these texts. Help us, Lord, not to be locked in uh, to, to necessarily to, to, uh, to categories, to definitions that just don't square with you. Help us, Lord, to look for you, to work in powerful ways. Thank you for the scriptures and for the way in which they guide us and define for us what we ought to expect. Help us to have the faith to believe that you will work and to pray that you will do so. And we ask that you would do that in our body as we think about reaching this community. We ask that you would work powerfully to bring people to you. In Jesus' name, amen.